You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode of Everyday Evidence, we are joined by Dr. Stacy Smallfield and Dr. Beth Fields. Dr. Stacy Smallfield is the Associate Program Director, an Associate Professor, and OT Capstone Director at the University of Nebraska Medical Center Division of Occupational Therapy. Dr. Beth Fields is an Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you both for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. Thank you for having us, Matt. Thank you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And we have a lot of good Midwest representation here. (laughs) You two authored the Occupational Therapy Practice Guidelines for Adults with Chronic Conditions, uh, which will be our topic of conversation. And the first question I have for you is what motivated each of you to focus your practice and this portion of your scholarship on chronic conditions? Stacey, you want to jump in first? Sure. I think, you know, for me, it, it's it's about health and longevity. A lot of my previous research has been with older adults and gerontology. And, you know, what, what we see in the literature is a lot of this is starts with healthy behaviors at younger ages. And so whatever we can do to, on the preventative side, to prevent chronic conditions and have healthy behaviors that can get us longer, longer, healthier years into our older adulthood. Um, I think that's where my passion is. And that's what motivated me to um, contribute to this chronic conditions topic. Yeah. And to add to that too, um, I've always loved working with aging adults and I've really been fascinated by the various advances in medicine and science over the years, which have allowed, like Stacy was sharing, people to live longer and often uh, live longer with more complex chronic conditions. Um, I've cared for various family members and friends with chronic conditions, and because those conditions are persistent or long-lasting, I've really enjoyed, as an OT, being able to help them address a wide range of challenges you know, from self-care activities um, to addressing some mental health. And as Stacy also said, those habits and routines. So I really like the diversity um, as an OT practitioner that we can we can have. I love the perspective that each of you have. And and thank you for sharing your motivations. Um, Dr. Smallfield was actually my academic mentor and advisor for OT school. And you really emphasized um, while I was there in, in our lab and, and research meetings, uh, the importance of wellness and, and developing um, healthy habits and, and helping other people to do that as well. Um, so that, that still sticks with me. Why do you feel it's important for occupational therapy professionals to generate, synthesize, and apply evidence related to interventions for adults with chronic conditions? I can go ahead and start with that one. I'll I'll just say it's it's really about being efficient and providing high quality care that our clients can use immediately and just in their day-to-day lives, right? So we need to be able to really give them the tools that are going to be most effective. And we only find out what's most effective 
by going to the research literature and finding out what that is. So it's our job as OTs to know what the literature is and to translate it or give it to the people who need it most. And those are our clients who are living with chronic conditions. Yeah, I think it, you know, to add to that, it it allows us as OTs to practice at the top of our license. So um, those skills, being able to generate, synthesize, um, critically appraise, and then apply or translate that evidence, those are skills that help us like really hone our information literacy skills, which I think allows us to become an evidence-based professional. I love that, the importance of information literacy. Um, I haven't heard that uh, that exact phrase before, um, but as a budding practitioner, it, it really um, hits home, the importance of focusing on that and incorporating it into my daily habits uh, to, to improve my practice with, with the people I work with. Um, thank you both. Let's go ahead and jump into our discussion on these practice guidelines specifically. Um, could you give us an introduction to the topic of chronic conditions and what their functional implications can be? Sure. Um, so we, we know that chronic conditions are considered any health condition that lasts a year or more. And really, um, in addition to lasting that longer period of time, it also results in limited functional daily activities. So we commonly think of chronic conditions, things like um, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, lung disease, and others. Um, And they're often health conditions that need ongoing medical attention. The scary thing, or maybe the concerning part of chronic conditions, six in 10 U.S. adults have at least one chronic condition, and four in 10 have two or more. So we know that these people are really needing to, to manage their health condition so that they can uh, live productive lives. And so that means like it, it impacts their function because they need to be thinking about managing medication routines, medica- uh, managing other health behaviors. And sometimes it even means impacting or influencing how their, their care partners or care providers, their, their family and significant others, how they're living their lives too. So certainly a big topic that we need to, to pay attention to. Um, in this uh, practice guideline, we have focused just on certain chronic conditions because AOTA has already completed pretty sub- significant systematic reviews and practice guidelines on some of the chronic conditions. So specifically, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, and stroke are specifically not included in this chronic condition practice guideline, Um, but things like diabetes, lung disease, other cardiac conditions, asthma, those types of things are included in this chronic conditions practice guideline. Awesome. Thank you for that introduction. I think all of us have experienced or can relate to uh, the type of disruption that an acute illness um, like the flu or an injury uh, causes to our daily routine and habits. Um, But 
yeah, have a chronic condition, something that lasts over a year, um, really means someone has to change a lot of aspects about their life and not just for a temporary period, but permanently going forward. How would you say occupational therapy fits in the care continuum for adults with chronic conditions? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a firm believer that occupational therapy is uniquely positioned to support adults with chronic conditions across the care continuum from primary care clinics um, all the way to hospice care. However, um, as Stacey just mentioned, that our practice guideline focused on uh, select chronic conditions. We also focused on the literature reviews um, on community-dwelling adults. So much of the literature is focused on those who are residing in the community. There is one caregiver uh, systematic review question that is a bit different in this practice guideline. Um, so you'll see some other settings represented as well. Um, but the majority of the literature uh, that informed this practice guideline uh, is focused on the community. So as OTs, we, we help our clients achieve their goals using a holistic perspective where we take into account um, not only an individual's characteristics, but their desired uh, occupations and needed occupations and then their surrounding environments. And helping develop this practice guideline uh, really reinforced to me that OTs are skilled professionals um, that assess and address clients' performance patterns. Um, so those performance patterns from our OT practice framework are those acquired habits, routines, roles, and rituals that people use in the process of engaging in their occupations. And those performance patterns help us establish healthy lifestyles. So uh, I think that's the unique um, aspect that OTs bring to this uh, client population. I love that, the impact that, that OTs can have on performance patterns of people we work with. Thank you for emphasizing kind of the, the increased prevalence of chronic conditions and, and what practitioners can do. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Um, I have a question. Say I'm a practitioner. I go to AOTA.org. I download the these practice guidelines. Um, how is the publication organized? What would I be looking at? And how would you recommend practitioners use it? Um, this actually uh, is a, one of the practice guidelines that is organized a bit differently than previous practice guidelines. So it's a really good question to to ask because it's going to look different if people have are familiar with previous ones. So we start this practice guideline with a general overview, talking about the practice guideline process in general and information specific to the topic of chronic conditions. Then the practice guideline moves into a clinical recommendations section. And that section is a 
pretty lengthy table that outlines the strength of evidence from each of the systematic reviews that are, that are providing evidence for the practice guideline as a whole. So as you may or may not know, every practice guideline that's produced by AOTA is informed by systematic reviews that are completed just prior to the practice guideline. So all of these systematic reviews, all that evidence that's found in the systematic review process is what informs the practice guideline. So this table, this clinical recommendation section, takes, in this case, we had four systematic reviews, and it really uh, synthesizes the evidence into a usable table um, of what the main findings were for each of those systematic reviews. Then the next section of the practice guideline is about translating those recommendations into practice. So we're drawing from that clinical recommendations section and applying it to case examples. So this next section really contains two case studies uh, that, you know, exemplify a case that an OT might experience. And along with that case description, we have built in an algorithm for how you might go about clinically reasoning through that case through this essentially a decision tree about what you should do for each decision point as you're working with that client. And it leads you then to the evidence that you would apply in that case. The next section then after those uh, case scenarios and algorithms is called a filling in the gaps section. And this section is where we really talk a little bit about where there may not have been evidence or where there are gaps in knowledge. And we provide some expert opinion about, you know, what to do when the literature may be lacking in a specific area, or maybe there is literature, but just not enough. So we talk a little bit about that. Then we uh, summarize the whole practice guideline. Also then toward the end of the practice guideline, is some uh, background information about the method that we use to conduct the systematic reviews that inform the practice guidelines. So there's more detail about the method, the search criteria, search terms, inclusion, exclusion, things that we considered uh, when we did each of those systematic reviews that inform the practice guideline. And then for practitioners who are really interested in going directly to the literature, of course, we have all of the references to each of the articles that were included in the review. Thank you for that overview. This is truly a, a robust um, publication and it, it can be so helpful for practice. Um, and I love the emphasis on translation of the evidence that you found into practice. Um, and providing examples and guidance for practitioners to do that. I want to go through each of those sections and and dive a little deeper for the listeners. Um, I've said it before on Everyday Evidence, I love a good table. Um, And so I think the clinical recommendations table is a great place to start. Um, You mentioned that you included four systematic review questions, which guided that clinical recommendation table. So I'd love to go through each of these questions 
Um, I don't think we have time to highlight all the interventions that are supported with strong or moderate evidence, um, but at least a touch on them. So question number one was, what are the clinical recommendations for the effectiveness of self-management interventions within the scope of OT on the performance of ADLs, sleep, and rest? among community-dwelling adults with chronic conditions. What can you tell us about this research question? Sure, I'll start with that, Matt. Um, the first thing we know is that there's strong evidence for uh, using things like mind-body self-care, education, things like um, sleep hygiene, nutrition, physical activity, relaxation techniques to improve sleep. And so, you know, we know that sleep is so important for performance of daytime occupations. And so we have found in the literature that there is evidence supporting just these types of interventions to improve our sleep. And that's for people with heart disease, um, COPD, or people with at least one chronic condition. Then in the area of diabetes and daily activities, uh, make sure OTs should be using foot self-care management education with these clients. So Uh, Make sure OTs are addressing things like foot self-care, risk factors, hygiene, footwear, prevention, goal setting, and problem solving for adults with diabetes. Doses and administration of that may vary. And then for people with heart disease or COPD, we also found that OTs can use physical training um, with or without additional education to address ADLs, to improve IADL performance and those types of things. And that can be, um, in the literature, we looked at 12-week studies either in outpatient or in the home, and it should include aerobic and resistant exercise. So those are the highlights. Um, There's moderate strength of evidence for that finding in terms of using physical training for addressing ADL performance for people with heart disease or COPD. So those were the major findings that were coming out of the systematic review on evidence to enhance performance of ADLs and sleep and rest. Thank you. And when you say there's strong evidence for some interventions and moderate for others, what really does that mean for a practitioner in considering which intervention to use? Sure. Um, Strong and moderate ratings of evidence have to do with the number of high-quality studies that are in the literature on that topic. And so the more studies we have and the more high quality of a study design gets you a stronger rating. Specifically, we're looking for things like randomized controlled trials that have a good number of participants where we're really controlling for a lot of potential bias, those types of studies are going to improve the likelihood that that the findings are because of the intervention and not because of other reasons. So when we have multiple randomized controlled trials, that's what's going to give us a stronger strength of evidence. If we have lower quality of studies, like maybe only either, either not as many studies, maybe only one randomized controlled trial or maybe multiple studies, but not at a randomized controlled trial, that's what's going to give us more of a moderate strength of evidence. Yeah, and just so the listeners know too, like this practice guideline um, 
it was reviewed and finalized by staff at AOTA, um, including a research methodologist. Um, and is also out for, uh, went out for review from other experts across the country in occupational therapy, as well as key stakeholders. Um, so some of the, some individuals that have chronic conditions themselves or are care partners of people with chronic conditions um, to review uh, everything that was integrated in the practice guideline. Um, and AOTA has used uh, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force to grade the strong, moderate, and low evidence uh, levels that Stacy was just describing. Awesome. Thank you. And I think that's so helpful for our listeners and, and practitioners all over um, to consider starting with strong evidence, but also using their own clinical reasoning to find an intervention that will be the best fit um, for their client. Moving on now to systematic review number two, um, that review question is, what are the clinical recommendations for the effectiveness of self-management interventions within the scope of OT on the performance of IADLs among community-dwelling adults with chronic conditions? Um, can we discuss uh, the findings from that review? Sure, I'll go ahead and take that one as well, Matt. Um, and I'm going to talk about the findings um, more diagnostic specific or in, in categories based on the condition. So I'll first talk about diabetes. Um, in for, for people with diabetes, um, we have strong evidence to support either um, long duration interventions, so things like weekly for one to three months, or short duration interventions, and either group intervention or one-on-one -on -one intervention. So you have lots of, kind of lots of options. You can do long duration, like a weekly group intervention, or you could do even shorter group interventions, or you could do like one-on-one -on -one interventions. But what you're doing in this intervention is really doing self, teaching self-management skills. So things like education about their diagnosis, teaching them skills about developing an action plan, how to set goals and how to problem solve. And all of those are for outcomes for things like managing, managing their health. So, so things like improving their HbA1c levels, um, teaching them how to self-monitor blood glucose level, best things for their diet and for their physical activity. So then I'm going to move on to the asthma condition. Uh, we have moderate strength of evidence for people with asthma that, um, again, group sessions or individual sessions that address things like diagnosis education, skill training, and self-management. And that can include things like um, daily peak flow meter information, symptom monitoring, those kinds of things. Those types of interventions increase self-efficacy and improve self-behaviors for adults with asthma. Then we're going to move to cardiac conditions. And uh, again, in this category, we have moderate strength of evidence that we can provide either individual services or group-based services that address supports and barriers to physical activity, goal setting, 
um, using a physical activity diary and diagnosis education to um, improve things like physical activity and medication adherence, reduce BMI, monitor blood pressure, monitor cholesterol levels, so things overall health management of that cardiac condition. And then the last category is for kidney disease. Again, here we have moderate strength of evidence for individual sessions to address action planning, goal setting, and diagnosis education to improve self-management skills, self-efficacy, and disease knowledge for adults with chronic kidney disease, but those individuals are not yet on dialysis. Thank you for this summary. Um, hearing you explain and, and go through this table um, really makes me realize how helpful these practice guidelines can be to all practitioners, but especially practitioners who are um, transitioning to a new area of practice um, or are getting that that first job out of school. Um, and that's that would be my scenario. Um, and really helping to identify what interventions are going to be the most helpful? What interventions do I need to start learning more about to ensure that that what I'm doing is going to be effective for clients, first of all, um, but also backed by research and evidence and is going to be billable and, and ethical to do uh, with the people that, that we're working with? Beth, is there anything you wanted to add about systematic review number two? I think Stacy did a really nice job summarizing the key key takeaway points for the IADL systematic review question. I will say the a, ADL and IADL um, systematic review questions definitely generated the majority of the literature. And the the last two questions, which I I can um, address, didn't have quite as much research within the scope of OT. Kind of a, a sidebar question. Would would you say a lot of this research that you reviewed in the systematic reviews, was it generated by OT researchers and educators or did it come from a, a broader scope? I thought it was a nice mixture. What did you think, Stacey? Yes, I, certainly there are there is some that is specifically um, being conducted by OTs, but also more broadly, especially, say, for example, in the area of diabetes. Many studies uh, conducted with a nursing, you know, diabetes educators, those kinds of things as well. Awesome. That was a, a little personal curiosity, but I love to kind of see the, the mix and collaboration of, of using research from other fields to improve health overall. And systematic review, question number three, what are the clinical recommendations for the effectiveness of self-management interventions within the scope of OT on the performance of education work, volunteering, leisure, and social participation, Beth? Yeah. Um, so as I just mentioned, there there's a huge opportunity for OT researchers and educators to dive a bit deeper into this specific area of practice. Um, there was some evidence uh, that um, fell under the moderate level using that preventative uh, task force grading based on our evaluation of the literature, as well as our professional expertise, uh, the clinical recommendations that are part of the practice guideline would include using tailored multimodal interventions. Uh, and these interventions really focused on goal setting, problem solving, um, and then also increasing physical activity. And the literature for this specific question was primarily uh, for 
those with uh, type 2 diabetes. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll move on to the fourth systematic review. Uh, and the question, I feel like I'm starting to sound like a broken record reading these questions. Um, what are the effectiveness of intervention for caregivers of people with chronic conditions within the scope of OT practice that facilitate the ability to maintain participation in their caregiver role? Yeah, this is um, definitely in my wheelhouse. My research focuses on caregiving for the most part in health services. Um, so this research question, uh, I helped uh, some colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh um, complete this systematic review. So our overall uh, takeaway points from this literature, again, um, many of the interventions were tailored and multimodal. They were often group-based, and those groups tended to focus on providing disease-specific education, coping strategies, and community resources for caregivers of adults with chronic conditions. And I actually prefer the term care partners now, but the systematic review does use the term caregivers. And as Stacy mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, so there were some chronic conditions that were, uh, for the most part, excluded from the systematic reviews that were part of the guideline. This question and systematic review is more unique. So because previous guidelines did not have a caregiver-focused question, um, we included more types of chronic conditions for the systematic review. So the interventions for this, for this group being caregivers were mainly caregivers of those with um, or caregivers of adults that had just experienced a stroke. So that is, that is more unique than the other three questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I, um, I like that change from caregiver to care partner. That seems like it can be very empowering um, and so important to include care partners and family members to increase carryover and, and sustainability of progress uh, that, that people may obtain from receiving OT services. I want to transition now to the translation portion of this practice guideline. But before we do, is there anything either of you would like to add to the systematic review questions? Oh, I was just going to say, Matt, too, to um, just share why I'm more of a proponent for care partner versus caregiver, especially when it comes to aging adults, um, is many of them, you know, have expressed that they that I've worked with many aging adults that I've worked with. Sorry, let me put add some context there. Um, have expressed, you know, when I've asked them if they want to identify a caregiver, they say no right away. They don't need care being given to them. Um, so I think that that's just naturally how people perceive it. So I think if you say do you or ask someone, do you have a support person or a partner that helps you? Um, complete some of those regular activities on a daily basis. I think aging adults in particular um, are more open to receiving that. Um, so that that's my push for uh, the terminology change. Absolutely. Yeah, thank, thank you for explaining that. It sounds uh, like it can be really beneficial. Can we discuss now the clinical uh, reasoning considerations practitioners should keep in mind when consulting with the practice guidelines? Yes, absolutely. Um, so really, when you're thinking about 
how to use these uh, clinical recommendations, you also want to combine what you're reading about the recommendations with your own clinical experience and also considering the preferences of clients and their families. Um, so if we think of that Venn diagram of, you know, where one circle is the research that we found from the in the literature, and then another circle is the clinical experience and reasoning that the OT brings to the situation, and then a third overlapping circle is the preferences of their clients and the families. It's when those, it's that middle section of where those three circles overlap. That's where we're going to get the application of evidence-based practice. And so some things that a clinician would want to ask about in terms of how to use these recommendations is, first is, exactly what do I need to do? So think about based on the research that you're looking at, does the actual study provide enough detail in the method of what they did in the intervention or or simply about the intervention? Do I know enough about it so that I can actually do it in practice? So that is one thing that that you're really going to have to ask yourself. Then think about how your own intervention setting matches the setting in which the study occurred. So if I'm working in outpatient, but the study was conducted in the home, how is that going to translate? And is it appropriate for me to even use this um, to base my intervention off of this study if it's happened in two different settings? Is there enough similarity or is it too far apart to translate it to the same type of expect the same type of results. And then also think about, as an OT, how flexible is that intervention? So as a clinician, am I able to modify that at all? Or do I need to follow the protocol exactly as they did it in the study in order to get the same results? So those are just a few of the questions that a clinician should be thinking about as they begin to apply those clinical recommendations to actual clients. Thank you for outlining those questions. Um, I think over time, those can become automatic in, in a clinician's clinical reasoning. Um, but really in, in a transition period or, or working with a, a new type of diagnosis or, or population, that can be so helpful to use those introspective questions um, to guide consulting evidence and applying evidence and, and how best to intervene. Um, with with clients. Um, so thank you. In addition to, to everything we've discussed, uh, you mentioned that the practice guidelines include some case illustrations and algorithm, algorithms uh, that demonstrate how a practitioner can use this evidence to inform their practice. Um, can we introduce one of these case studies and, and walk through it as an example? Yeah, of course. I will take the lead on this section. So Stacey and I both put together two cases that are part of the practice guideline, so I'll talk about one. Um, Jordan is a non-binary 75-year-old who was referred to outpatient OT uh, due to recent progression of diabetic neuropathy in their lower lower extremities, secondary to uh, long-standing type 2 diabetes, Um, and Jordan recently had a fall. 
Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for the intro to Jordan. What were the initial evaluation findings for our friend Jordan? Yeah, Jordan. Um, so our initial evaluation revealed that Jordan's independent in functional mobility, dressing, eating, and showering. So those ADLs, uh, they shared that they've been quite sedentary since their fall. Uh, Jordan described their home to us as being very accessible, and they stated that they purchased their townhome about 10 years ago uh, so that they could age in place. The townhome is a one level, so there's no step entry. Uh, It has grab bars installed near the toilet, um, as well as a walk-in shower. Jordan self-reported that they uh, entertain friends on the weekends. They like making fun cocktails and cooking big, extravagant meals. Uh, over the last couple of months, Jordan started to notice some num- numbness and tingling in their feet uh, and recognized that they needed to do a better job of taking care of their feet and really wanted to learn um, some preventative strategies for uh, to prevent sorry, foot complications my Monday morning brain still. It's a, it's a low cognitive day. That's all right. <laughs> um, and then they also shared that they wanted to find ways to exercise and prefer to do that in a group setting. And the nice thing about the practice guideline, in addition to some of those self-reported items too, uh, Stacy and I, we include um, tables in each each case study. So the tables will include some uh, more performance-based outcome measures. So in Jordan's case study, the Tenetti balance assessment was done, did some sensory testing, and then also, um, of course, the COPM. And then Jordan completed a fear of falling questionnaire since they had um, been referred to OT outpatient as a result of falls. So that information is also part of the case, but I won't go into too much detail um, since you can find all that information. Perfect. Thank you so much. Jordan sounds like a very, I guess, outgoing and uh, a, just, just a great client to have that has motivation and, and interest in in participating. Um, w- what interventions were used for Jordan in this case study? Um, and then I'll go on ahead and include a double-barreled question here. What were the outcomes of interventions for Jordan as well? Yeah. So based on the literature um, that we reviewed and our clinical expertise, Jordan uh, had attended four OT outpatient visits um, that were spaced out over a month. Those visits were delivered in person at the outpatient clinic. And Jordan's plan of care, you know, because of his uh, expressed goals, uh, the plan of care really focused on diabetic foot care and then a group-based self-management program, which emphasized that goal-setting, physical activity, and healthy eating. So some of the outcomes from those four visits, Jordan self-reported that they were able to resume walking on a more regular basis after their fall. They also started preparing more healthy recipes that they learned from their self-management group program for their friends during um, the weekend dinner parties that they liked hosting. Jordan also started to incorporate a daily foot check into their hygiene grooming routine. Uh, So Jordan now trims their nails regularly, washes and dries their feet every day. And the main thing too here, they they take time to inspect 
their feet for any sores or changes to the skin. So overall, based on Jordan's first uh, assessment, initial assessment with the OT, they were able to meet all of those established goals. Again, those goals being focused on, you know, wanting uh, strategies to take better care of their feet um, and also find ways to uh, exercise and eat healthier. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, it sounds like a, a wonderful case study and wonderful illustration of helping someone to maintain their current uh, meaningful participation and habits, roles, and routines while also making adjustments uh, to improve their overall health and, and achieve the best outcomes as possible. Um, and there, there is a second case study included in these practice guidelines. Um, I don't think we have the time to include it here. Um, so we'll encourage all our listeners to check out the second case study on their own. But included in this case study section of the practice guidelines are the two algorithms um, that were mentioned earlier, the activity tolerance algorithm and diabetes foot care algorithm. Um, I think everyone loves a good decision tree to help guide clinical reasoning. How would you recommend a practitioner use the algorithms to support the translation of evidence to practice? Yeah, I think my first response to that, Matt, is to be careful not to use it as a cookie cutter approach to intervention. Um, we are OTs and we provide individualized client centered intervention. And so it's really important for us to consider the client's goals and interests. And as we've talked about their habits and routines and the setting that they're in, as they consider how to um, take the recommendations of those interventions that you'll find in the algorithms, you know, how they're going to apply that. So my first response to that is to that practitioner should really, you know, think about the client's factors and then determine if the evidence or maybe how the evidence can be best applied in that individual case. Absolutely. Thank you, Beth. Um, did you want to add anything about these algorithm decision trees? Yeah, I think Stacy did a nice job um, summarizing, you know, how to use the algorithms. Like, like she mentioned, I think it's just important to approach the algorithms um, from thinking about not only the evidence, but, but your client's background as well. So really using that holistic perspective that us as OTs um, approach our practice with. Absolutely. And I think sometimes that can be easier said than done. I know looking at an algorithm or decision tree, it's, it's tempting to just go through it in that cookie cutter method. Um, but it brings us back to the classic OT consideration. Every answer, every step of that decision tree, it depends. Um, it depends on the client factors and, and the points that you both are mentioning. Um, we're coming now to the conclusion of our interview. Um, it's been wonderful having you both on. Uh, but I just have two more questions. Uh, the first being, what additional resources would you recommend to listeners who want to learn more about these practice guidelines um, or self-management interventions for people with chronic conditions in general? Yeah, so I can go ahead and um, share a couple additional resources. Um, so some that are mentioned in the practice guideline uh, include the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and this resource provides a list of tips for setting and documenting uh, collaborative health management or self-management goals. So 
specifically for those with chronic conditions. And these can be found in the, the reference list within the practice guideline. Another helpful resource I, uh, that listeners can turn to is AOTA's recently published position statement on occupational therapy's role in the promotion of health. And I really like uh, how this statement provides examples of occupation-based primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention interventions. The last resource that I think listeners should know is um, know more about is the Self-Management Resource Center. And this center is uh, an online resource that has a bunch of different um, materials and information on. So they offer kits, the um, downloadable ebooks and videos, and then also seminars and other trainings uh, that you can sign up for and take at your own pace, or some are even in person, that are focused on living a healthy life with chronic conditions. And I think one of the things I like most about this self-management resource center is that most of these materials are not just provided in English, but can also be um, found in Spanish and other languages as well. I do love that. Thank you for sharing those uh, wonderful resources. Um, We try to include all of those in our episode description uh, or links to them if we can uh, for our listeners. Um, Dr. Smallfield, were there additional resources you'd like to recommend at this point? Well, I think Beth mentioned some really good ones. Um, But additionally, if uh, listeners are interested, they can also access each of the systematic reviews that informed the practice guideline. Um, Those um, either are already published in AJAT or will be forthcoming. So if you want to dive deep into any of those four questions we talked about earlier, you could look there. Um, And then, you know, my other recommendation is there's lots of listeners have a focus of maybe they primarily work with people with diabetes or primarily with people with lung disease. So in those cases, I would, I would kind of focus on the key studies that are in the practice guideline in those for those specific conditions and and really get to know the key articles and maybe even the authors follow the author's work so that you know um, when new studies are coming out and things like that so if you really want to go deep um, there's definitely opportunity to do that Um, podcasts there's lots of podcasts on lots of topics and i'm sure um, there are other podcasts generally available that you could use to, you know, keep up on the new literature coming out. Absolutely. We, we love a good podcast here. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, this brings us now to the final question I have for you, our golden nugget segment, um, a question that Dr. Smallfield, I believe you're familiar with, um, that began um, as part of a uh, uh, research week we conducted together okay. at, at WashU. Yeah. Um, And the question is, if you could share one piece of advice or one recommendation with practitioners, what would it be? I think, you know, for me, it goes, I don't, I didn't emphasize it enough, probably in the beginning of the podcast, but when we think about chronic conditions, it's really some health behaviors that are often uh, can contribute to the development of a chronic condition. So things like not getting enough physical activity or not eating enough fruits and vegetables, 
or maybe excessive alcohol or tobacco use, you know, those are some of the health health behaviors that contribute to the development of chronic conditions. And so I'm a big proponent of modeling the way about health behaviors to our clients and the people around us. So my recommendation is start early, eat, eat fruits and vegetables, engage in physical activity that is interesting to you, uh, limit alcohol and tobacco use, and developing those habits and routines will certainly hopefully reduce your risk or of a chronic health condition, or if you already have a chronic condition, it could improve your overall health. Um, but it, but having those healthy habits and routines, you're also serving as a role model for people around you. So hopefully we can move those numbers in how many people have chronic health conditions in the, in the first place. Absolutely. I love that. The importance of, of practicing what you're practicing, what you preach and also being a role model. Uh, I think that's, that's excellent advice. Um, Beth, how about you? If you could share one piece of, of advice with practitioners, what would it be? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And just to uh, jump off of what Stacy was sharing, uh, I definitely need to do better at practicing what I what I preach. So after this podcast, I'm going to go outside for a quick loop around our our building, <laughs> uh, so I'm not as sedentary throughout the entire day in front of my computer. So I love that. I think we need to do a better job at being role models for our clients and demonstrating how how we can um, balance work and life uh, to maintain those habits. Um, but I think my piece of advice, more so on the science end, I think it's important for practitioners to really cultivate a professional commitment to taking time to critically appraise research and think thoughtfully about ways in which you can translate the strong and moderate evidence into their daily practice, which I know is easier said than done. Um, but I think as practitioners, we can really have a seat at the table um, in healthcare and start journal clubs. Um, make a commitment to go on to AOTA's website once a week to see what else is out there on blogs, etc. So I think uh, that's my my one piece of advice, and that will really help move the needle forward in this area of practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for sharing these uh, golden nuggets for our listeners. It's been a pleasure to have you both on the show. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us. Thanks, Matt. We really appreciate taking the time to uh, get the word out about the evidence that is available for this population. Yes, thank you, Matt. Thank you for the, the invitation to participate in today's podcast. Of course, anytime. You're welcome anytime. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.